Hey everyone, John here. One quick note before we start the show today. As I'm sure many of you have noticed, and a number of you have mentioned, the Polis podcast has been on hiatus over the last couple months. We probably should have mentioned that this was going to happen, but here we are. I was moving between countries, and as I'm sure many of you know, moving is always a time-consuming and exhausting process. Moving across the oceans, even more so. Anyway, as of today, we are back, and should be back to our regular fortnightly schedule, Thank you for sticking with us, and please keep sharing the show with your friends. Now let's get to the show. Welcome to episode 11 of the Polis Podcast. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And this week we are going to talk about the newest fad in transportation, e-bikes, e-scooters, dockless bike share, dockless anything at this point, I guess. We'll see what the future holds, but um, we want to talk about the ramifications and consequences of this new trend. Yeah. Depending on who you ask, the future of urban transit. (laughs) Yeah, it seems like it. It definitely seems like it. As annoying as they can be, or as great as they can be. We'll see. So, John, have you experienced these in the wild, or have you only read about them? I think you were mentioning earlier that you know you live in Ireland, and I don't think they've come to Ireland yet. Is that what you're saying? They have not come to Ireland. Well, actually, recently there is one that is here, which is different from any of the others that I've seen, which is kind of an interesting thing. And uh, I think kind of speaks to some of the cultural baggage here a little bit, um, which was interesting. I'll get into that in just a second. When I lived in Beijing uh, about two years ago now, that was right when these dockless bike sharing companies first came around. It started with Ofo and Mobike, and it started in Beijing. And so, yeah, I, I was right there and got to see it take over the city firsthand. Um, and it was it was something to watch. Mm. It seemed like early on, you just started seeing these bikes around, these weird orange-colored bikes. And over the course of a few months, you started to be... like I think by the time I left, there were like 12 companies that were doing it and competing and putting out hundreds of thousands of bikes all over the place. And I just remember it seemed like almost overnight, every street corner had 100 bikes on it. And it was great if you wanted to get around because you had so many options. It was so cheap. Like you'd take it for 30 minutes and it cost you maybe 15 cents. It was incredible, obviously completely unsustainable, but it was something else to watch. So these were dockless bike share or they were docked bike share? Dockless bike share. So Beijing does have a docked bike share, like city municipally run program, which I never really saw anyone use. But these dockless companies started up there a couple years ago and they exploded very quickly. There. And that's actually where, like, they now, the Chinese companies are obviously dominant in China at this point. And then they also have pretty well dominated the markets throughout Europe. Like, they're in Italy, they're in the UK. I don't remember exactly which countries they're in, but they have this plan essentially to roll out across all of Europe. And I think they've actually entered North America as well. But they're facing a little bit more competition in the States. Right. Because we have our own types of bike share or dockless bike share. I think the biggest ones now are, or the biggest bike share that I know of, dockless bike share, is uh, Lime Bike, mm. uh, and then there's also I think I think I think, actually think it was called Mobike in China. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think that's in other places. Although I'm not I'm not sure. I'm more familiar with Lime, and then also the scooters that have popped up everywhere too, um, mm, as well yeah. as the docked bike share programs. Because I think in the states it was the opposite. The docked bike share program rolled out first. And then Dockless came around after. And I was familiar with it, you know, living in the Bay Area, like it popped up 
all across hmm. the bay. And interestingly enough, sponsored by Ford. And <laughs> yeah, so, it is. And so I, I just thought that was hugely ironic. When they first showed up, I think in, in Oakland, <laughs> they had a, a, a like a, a launch party and the launch party was sponsored by Ford, four bikes, and they were holding it like on a street. So they were taking yeah. away street space from Ford cars to then celebrate the introduction of Ford bikes. I mean... I guess trying it's to show great. they're in on the future of transportation, you know. Yeah, I'm, and and that that to me is one of, it was one of the reasons why I wanted to do this episode. Why I was excited about doing this episode because we can talk about what that means for the future of transportation and potentially how car companies and also like ride sharing companies like Lyft and Uber are responding. So I think maybe first we should talk for those who are unaware uh, about like a dockless and docked bike share and like yeah. what it what it means and how it operates and all that. I've only ever used docked bike share. I use it in Paris, oh, the, okay. their old like Vailib program. Yeah. Well, I guess they still have it, but I use they it do. sort of like right after its inception, mm-hmm. maybe a couple of years after. But did you, when you were in China, did you use the dockless bike share? Yeah, I used the dockless exclusively in China. I have used okay. uh, in Paris and in New York and a number of other cities, the docked ones. Okay. Do you want to run through just quickly how it works? You know, how does, how does that work? How do you pick up a bike? Yeah, so anybody I'm sure that lives in a big city in Europe or North America has seen the docked ones. Uh, And generally there you have a stand that's kind of locked into the cement. You go up to it and you put in your credit card or if you have an account, you show your card. Uh, Here in Dublin, you can use your transit card. They have a docked system here. And then you can check out a bike and you have to go dock it at a certain amount of time at another bike station that are scattered around the city. For the dockless ones, I found it kind of revolutionary in terms of the way you actually travel. For them, essentially what you have is you have an app and all of the bikes are connected up to GPS. And so any bike that is not currently being used will show up on the app and you can see which one you're closest to, walk to that bike, unlock it through a QR code. These locks are just kind of a smart lock that goes through the back tire of the bike. And then you ride it to wherever you're going, you lock it up again and you walk away. And so you can leave it in front of your apartment, you can leave it in front of your work, you leave it wherever you want. And this is actually, we'll get into it at some point, one of the problems with these, Mm -hmm. uh, that you can just leave it anywhere. That is both a benefit and a difficulty. And so yeah, that's exactly how it works. And at least in China, there's not a huge issue with petty theft, and they have them all hooked up to GPS. So you, if you stole one, I guess, and you cut off the lock or something, they would be able to figure that out and find the bike and, you know, recover it from you. That's actually, speaking of the petty theft thing, that's actually one of the interesting things about the only dockless bike share that I've seen here in Dublin. They actually have a system where every bike has a cable. And when you leave it, you have to lock it up to these like steel posts all around the city. And you have to lock it to a steel post when you leave it because they don't want people to just take it home and start using it as their own bike. It's the only place that I've seen dockless bikes like that, because I've seen them in a number of countries, and generally you just leave it wherever you want. But here you have to actually lock it down. I'm not sure if that was a municipal regulation that they put in place, or if it was just the company's choice of how they innovated. But it was a peculiar thing that I noticed, because petty theft is definitely something that you know people are concerned about. Like I remember when I was living in East Asia, when I lived in Korea, China, you just didn't really worry about petty theft. When you're in places like the U.S. and you're in Europe, it is a more common thing, I feel like. Just culturally, it's more prevalent. That is absolutely insane that in Ireland, your dockless bike share is actually a docked bike share. I, yeah. I, I, like, by definition, they've changed what it is. That's crazy. I really want you to, like, 
report back on why that is a thing. Well, it is kind of a hybrid system because they have these all over the place for people to lock their own bikes, their personal bikes. So it's not like it's as restricted as a dock bike share because a dock bike share might have 15 docks and you have to lock it in one of those 15 or something. This one is much more open because there are these posts all over the city, but it's still, you're right, somewhat restricted. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I guess that makes sense. But at the same time, if you wanted to leave your bike outside of your apartment, you couldn't do it. You would have to go find a place yes. to put it down. Like that's that's just a part of the part of the model. Whereas everywhere else, it's not. Everywhere else, yeah. you can just leave it anywhere you want. And that's half the fun. And like you said, a difficulty. Hmm. Okay, cool. So now that we know a little bit about how they work, you know, they, they are pretty widespread. If you haven't seen them in your city, you most likely will soon. They're spreading everywhere. Yeah, I know that all the bike share programs, and now increasingly these the scooter share programs, for dockless especially, are, are try- they're rapidly expanding, like aggressively trying to get into every city possible and trying to build relationships with each city because it has been sort of a fight for these companies to introduce their product to the city because of the issues. And maybe we should talk a little bit about the problems with bike share first or the benefits. What do you think? Let's talk about the problems. Like we'll cool. get to the benefits, I'm sure. Right, right. That's and, true. W- and one distinction that I think should be made, because you're right, a lot of the companies are fighting to get into a lot of cities. Um, these docked bike shares that we've talked about, they tend to be municipally run. And it is an interesting thing that these dockless bike shares that have rolled out around the world are in the startup realm. They are heavily VC funded a lot of the time. They're not controlled by the municipalities at all. But it's interesting that there is that divide between the dockless and the docked, where one is city run and one is privately run. You know, I haven't seen that. In fact, quite the opposite. Really? Yeah. So the ones in the Bay Area, at least, it's actually the largest docked bike share program in the US is called Motivate. And it was Mm. just bought by Lyft. Really? So it wasn't a municipal program? No. So the Ford ones, are those municipally run? No, I don't think so. They might be like municipally regulated in the sense that they're allocated a portion of land Hmm. and that portion of land they're able to build their dock on. Okay. But beyond that, I mean, they can be heavily discounted for low-income people, but beyond that, I don't know if that's like an agreement within the city. That's actually a really good question. Because I know the Velib in France and the one in the Netherlands, the one in Milan in several Italian cities and the ones in China are municipally run. They're government paid for and government managed bike services. Yeah, I know. Motivate, it's a bike share company and Mm. it's privately owned. Okay. Yeah, it was now bought by Lyft in response to actually uber buying this other dockless bike share program called jump bikes they're bright mm. red and in motivate owns like the ford bikes in the bay area they own city bike in new york they own uh places you know uh, bike docked bike share programs all over the u.s so wow. uh yeah so that is um, ma- that's super interesting yeah yeah um, the ones that so, i know more about are the ones in europe the ones that i've actually used more so maybe mm. in the u.s it's more privately owned yeah or more privately owned system i should say so yeah, so I guess we should talk a little bit about sort of the downsides of these bikes. Yeah, maybe. Yes. Yeah, and I think what comes to mind most often, and the one that's the most easily visible, is the fact that at least for dockless bike share, that they can be just put anywhere. And yes. by put anywhere, I mean anywhere. I mean you just just Google this like crazy places that dockless bike share have shown up. Um, I've seen them thrown in rivers. I've seen them put up in trees. I've seen them on top of like <laughs> signs in corporate business parks. That was the funniest one. Just like turning a corner and seeing like this bike just chilling in, on top of like 
this sign <laughs> it looked like it'd been put on a pedestal like because you know it was at night and all the lights were shining on it yeah it was like it was a product being displayed in a window and that this company was sponsoring it these bikes and these scooters can just be put in places that are really out of the way or right up in your face and you know right on the sidewalk and you literally have to step over it as you're trying to walk down the sidewalk or you have to drive and swerve to avoid it because maybe someone put it too far into the street they just become public nuisances at times and i think that's like the the number one complaint that most people have and that cities have been trying to grapple with is mm. how to regulate it because at least in the case of san francisco um which i know best and which kind of became the model for the rest of the united states as it so often is. Yeah, as it so often is. And this is especially for scooters, which I should say are a little bit more of a nuisance because they're smaller. And so people think that they can leave them really anywhere. Whereas a bike is like bigger, it takes more to like throw it up on something. Scooters are, are lighter. Bikes also have the benefit of having established road etiquette. There are bike lanes in a lot of places. You, people right. know that you don't just ride down a crowded sidewalk with a bike. Scooters, it's much more up in the air. You do whatever kind of you think you should do. And a lot of people ride them in places where they shouldn't be riding them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think I think the issues are really like placement of the scooters and bikes just haphazardly. And then hmm. the relationship that the company has with the city and how they have rolled that out. So for example, for e-scooters in San Francisco... One day they just showed up and they were there and they were everywhere. There were yeah. like four or five companies that just put out their scooters and then suddenly they were everywhere and they just became this gigantic nuisance. Like it was, it was really bad. I watched Lime Bikes, the dockless mm. bike share program come out and they were not nearly as bad in terms of being like a public nuisance as the scooters were. I mean, it was, I was literally stepping over scooters as I walked to work. That's just because the competition wasn't as hot. There weren't as many companies getting into it right at the same time. Like when I was talking about Beijing, I remember... You could not walk anywhere. Like there were entire sidewalks completely blocked and you had to walk in the street for like 200 yards to get around the bikes that were just stacked there, right? That's like, insane. There were bikes of all different bright colors everywhere. And sometimes it was nice if you wanted a bike, but a lot of times it was, if not hazardous, at least annoying to have to navigate mm. around them. I can only mm -hmm. imagine what it would have been like as a driver. I didn't drive there. But like you said, there were bikes littered everywhere and... It's not great if you're driving and there's just a bike in the road. And and you know the other downside of this beyond just what you were describing about where they're placed, where they're ridden, and the relationship with the governments. The other problem is that a lot of these bikes, for the user, they get damaged pretty easily. Not all of these companies had a great deal of experience with manufacture and stuff beforehand. Mm -hmm. They didn't necessarily order the ideal situation. And even if they did, these things break down, right? And so sometimes you'll get on a bike and you'll have a flat tire, obviously, but sometimes you'll have a bent wheel or a broken axle. Like you, you could have all sorts of problems with the bike. And when you're on it, you don't have any kind of remedy necessarily. Like luckily these are not that expensive to use. So you could just lock it and go find another one. But they're not always swapped out very quickly or repaired very quickly. So mm -hmm. I found after a while mm -hmm. in Beijing, and I don't know if this applies to the States, I haven't lived there in a long time, but a lot of the companies, you would go and get on a bike and, you know, a third of the time it would be broken in some way that made riding, if not impossible, extremely uncomfortable. And so it's hard to complain when it's so cheap and you have this like breakneck speed of advance with these things and they're figuring it out as they go. But it's definitely far from an ideal experience at the start. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard similar issues, but I know that, I mean, when you look at like the Motivate website, hmm. they talk a lot about their supply chain and how they're able to roll out quick fixes for parts and replacements.
Whether or not that's true, I mean, I think it probably depends on the area. I think people actually have to report it on the bike if it's broken. I'm pretty sure there's like a report an issue button on the app. Mm. But yeah, that can definitely be an issue. I mean, to me, that seems like a fundamental flaw in the business model, right? Sure. If, if you can't make it work, then you're not going to have any customers. And yeah. so far, it's been it's been working. So I can't imagine that it's... I mean, if there is an issue, it's not so much that it's detrimental to, to the entire network of bikes. And I think it's less of an issue with docked bikes because with docked bikes in most cities, one of the problems with docked bikes is actually that mm-hmm. certain docks at certain times of the day are always full or always empty because mm-hmm. people tend to commute in one direction and commute the other direction. That's the beauty of the dockless ones that they can go everywhere. But... The benefit of that is that when these docked bike companies want to move their bikes to another dock because they want to redistribute them, they load them all up in a truck and they drive them across town, right? So then they have somebody there handling the bikes that can see if they're damaged, see if they're messed up. With the dockless ones, if no one reports it, like if it's visibly damaged, no one will report it because no one will use it and they don't have anybody coming by to check on it. They have, you know, another 10,000 bikes across the city. And so it just sits there languishing, being broken and terrible, never getting collected for weeks and weeks. And so it's more of an issue with them. But you're right. Like, these are the things that they'll figure out over time or else they'll go out of business. So, Well, I, I will say for dockless bikes, you're probably right. But for dockless electric scooters, hmm. it's actually the same thing because every night those scooters are picked up by people who go home and they charge the scooters. They actually right. get paid to do this. There's an entire sort of ulterior or secondary market yeah underground economy exactly for picking up these bikes and a lot of people have made good money off of it i mean there's the one of the companies that are not bikes scooters i'm sorry one of the companies is called bird Mm -hmm. it's like bird e-scooters and it's gotten to the point where there are so many people doing it that they call it actually like going bird hunting (laughs) and you actually get more i was reading an article about this it's fascinating you get more money depending on how hard it is to get to the bike, or sorry, to the scooter. Why don't you explain what exactly they're doing? Okay, so what the The charger people are doing, yeah. Oh, what the charger, yeah, I mean, it's really simple. E-scooters have a battery, and they need to be charged each night in order to work the next day. The company doesn't want to pay, they don't want to pay for regular employees to go out and just get those scooters, so they pay random people to go do it. All you do is sign up, I think, with the app, and you say, hey, I'm going to, like, go catch a bird, go get a bird, and you go do it. And they give you a certain amount of money. I think it's like a base fare for each e-scooter that's picked up and brought back to your care and charged overnight. And you actually get more money depending on how many people are doing it at that moment in that city and also how difficult it is to get the scooter. And so like a lot of people have made a lot of good money off of it. One of the downsides to it is that some people like have gotten hurt trying to find scooters in dangerous areas or sure. people have used scooters to lure people into dark alleys to be mugged. Um, oh wow. Because yeah, wow. because they people know are creative. I know creative. That's terrible. It's terrible, I mean, but it's still creative. <laughs> okay, I guess. Like if you're thinking about how am I going to mug somebody to say, okay, I'm going to get a scooter, power it down, and drive it into this alley so that somebody comes to recharge it. Like that is a whole lot of thinking. Like that's I know, a whole lot in, of planning. It's insane. Those are some of the downsides for it. Um, I mean, the upsides are that people are getting paid. You know, a lot of high schoolers do it. I was mm. reading that it's like something. You know, because you you just go out and catch these scooters after after school or whatever, and you can make a good amount of money off of it. Yeah. Of course, again, the amount you're paid goes down depending on the number of people who are catching scooters at the time. People right. also got into fights too, because sometimes people will get there to a scooter like moments before another. It's like Pokemon Go with money, right, dude? That's actually a great way to put it. <laughs> yes, it is Pokemon Go with money. 
yeah, yeah. it's insane. But it, it works on a similar model to like Uber or Lyft with surge pricing right. and all of that, right? So the more people looking, so. the less money they get, all of that. Yeah, 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 I think so. Yeah, you just don't have to own a car. Yeah, exactly. And now it's not exactly that profitable in big cities because people mm. know about it. But if e-scooters are just coming to your city, they're just arriving, I would suggest getting on that and seeing if you can make a quick buck. Because it could, there might not be that many people who are out looking for them. So anyway, I really wanted to talk about the downsides of the fact that they can be placed anywhere and that they are a public nuisance. Because they are. We've both seen them. Mm -hmm. Cities around the world are railing against these these companies and saying, like, you need to figure out a way that they don't become detrimental to the functioning of the city. You know, people have tripped over them, gotten hurt, and then who's at fault, right? Yeah. So there's, there's that. And then there's also, I think, like, the way that these were rolled out. I think it's a really good test case for creating relationships with cities or creating a harmful relationship with cities yeah. or a bad relationship with cities. Because I know in San Francisco for the e-scooters, like because they became such a nuisance and because people started to use them in bike lanes, which is another thing we should talk about, and they became a nuisance because of that, an even greater nuisance, the city of San Francisco ultimately banned them and yeah. forced the companies to take them off the streets. It was like two months ago, I think. And yep. just now in July, I think they started rolling out in like April or March. Um, just now in July, they're finally getting around to doing a pilot permitting program for these scooters. And I mean, city officials were angry, really angry at these companies for just rolling it out without any sort of forewarning or permitting process. And I feel like that's definitely an issue and sort of a, a best practice that maybe you shouldn't do. I think they were trying to follow sort of the Uber model. Yeah, I mean, they took a page right out of Uber's book. The problem right. is that the scooters are so much more visible. Like Uber, for anybody right. that doesn't actually know about it, is completely invisible. It only affects people right. who know about it because right. the passengers and the drivers just look like normal people in a car. The scooters... Right. Everyone knows, everyone sees, they're in everyone's way, everyone's face. So they're being kind of more standoffish in the same way that Uber was, except everyone can see it and everyone's already been prepared by, you know, the rows and anger that they've had with Uber. And so it came to a head much, much faster. Exactly. But so, so John, what do you think are like the reasons behind people just throwing these bikes and scooters everywhere? And do you think there are any solutions you know, to make it better? Um, yes. So <laughs> broadly speaking, I would say I don't think that it's going to be a long-term problem. I think these are the kinds of things where etiquette grows, etiquette develops. When people are new to it, like think about if you're somebody coming up to something new, like a bike share, and you're going to go ride the bike, you want to ride it to work. Well, where are you supposed to leave it? Nobody knows. It's your first time using it. No one told you how to do it. No one told you what to do. So you just leave it somewhere. As this continues, as people use it more regularly, I think etiquette will develop. That being said, I think it can be helped by perhaps restricting to certain zones where you can put it. I mean, as we've always talked about, the biggest issue in cities is space and how space is used. And if these bike sharing and scooter sharing and all of these things are taking up the space that is required for pedestrians or space that is required for other uses, like in parks or what have you, then you're going to have a problem. So if it persists as a problem and the companies cannot get better at creating etiquette, like for instance, an easy way to do it if you were the government communicating with these companies is to communicate to the company that 
they should only allow people to park the bikes in certain zones or certain types of location. And then the company could put a financial incentive like you get a partial refund if you park it in the right place, or you get a penalty, an extra charge if you park it in the wrong place, right? That would be a relatively simple way to start to teach people where to put it. Conversely, you could put the kind of stronger force of drawing yellow paint on, on certain parts of sidewalks and say you can only park it in these zones, right? So there are a number of ways you could implement it. But I think it's generally going to be a problem that resolves itself over time. And mm. cities and the users of these bikes and the companies will all adapt to the needs and all kind of figure it out over the course of time. I, I'm probably more optimistic than you about this, though. No, no, actually, I agree. Well, I agree with the first part in that it's just an etiquette thing. I agree because I think I've seen it. I watched Lime bikes roll out in my community and I watched them be thrown in crazy places and it was mm. hilarious for a while and then it became a nuisance and then it became kind of sad because it was like, you know, no one's going to use that. It's at the bottom of the lagoon. But right. now, right down the street from me, there's a corner. It's kind of a sort of a wide corner. So there's a lot of sidewalk to it and there's mm -hmm. it's next to a gas station. So there's like this little tiny sort of mound like concrete mound that they've used to separate the sidewalk from the gas station. And right there, for some reason, there are always line bikes that are just placed in a neat row as if they are a docked bike share. Hmm. And, you know, when you go there, there's always a different number of the line bikes, but it has become a informal docked bike station. Hmm. And it's amazing. And that only popped up after a couple months yeah. of the bikes, like sort of regulating throughout the community. But now that's a place that people know to put their bikes. And especially because people follow rules, even unspoken rules. So if you see a lot of bikes lined up on one spot, you might walk across the street and put your bike there, right? Rather than like putting it next to a bus stop or something. And let me tell you, as a person that uses these, like it feels nicer to park your bike where you feel like you're supposed to park it and to know where to put it. Like mm -hmm. if you're riding your bike and then you obviously aren't going to leave it on the street because you're a reasonable mm -hmm. human being. So you move to put it on the sidewalk and you see immediately it's in the way of everybody walking. That doesn't feel good. Most people want to not be destructive in the way that they're living life. One would hope. Yeah. So people, I think, conform to these sorts of things, especially if you see a nice, neat line. Anybody with OCD, you know, park it right in line. It's perfect. <laughs> um, but yeah. And this is not going to be a 100% solution, right? Because there are always going to be people that are in a hurry or people that are just rude or don't care. And maybe some of those market incentives of mm -hmm. charging people a penalty if they leave the bike overturned or if they, you know, leave the bike damaged or what, whatever you could try to do could push people's behavior somewhat. But mm -hmm. yeah, I'm not sure that there is an automatic solution. I think we'll just have to watch it and maybe see if it right. moves in the right direction. Something I wanted right. to ask you though, why do you think the scooters that have rolled out are universally electric and yet the bikes at least for the dockless bikes, seem to not be electric at all. At least I haven't run into very many electric bikes that are on bike shares. So the one caveat, I'll just, before I give my answer, the one caveat to this, or the one development in this, is the dockless bike share that Uber just bought, Jump, mm -hmm. they're electric. Okay. As far as I know. But the vast majority are not. You're right. You're right. You're right. I just wanted to say that a major okay. player in the transportation game is now going to roll out probably a lot more of e-bikes. Yeah. And I think, I think number one, it started out as manual bikes because it was what people were used to. Hmm. So just like, you know, as a new business model, new technology, well, kind of new technology, they, I think they wanted to take baby steps first with potential to add in electric bikes, and now they are. Right. I'm, I'm specifically thinking of like line bike. And the other thing is that 
It might have re- probably reduced costs too. You know, you don't have yeah. to put in a, you don't have to put in a battery in a motor. And they didn't know if there were issues with theft or issues with a lot of the bikes. That's true. Eventually, get well, not a lot of the bikes, but a good amount of the bikes get actually. They might not get stolen so much as they get broken down for parts and then sold. Hmm. You just take out the GPS and then just, you know, you take it out at like a specific point. So the signal is last seen somewhere public and then you just move the, you know, you move the parts to somewhere private and you can easily sell it and break it down for scrap or whatever. But I guess that's kind of the main reason. Additionally, the other thing is just sort of the mechanics between scooters and bikes. I mean, the reason why I stopped using a scooter is because it was stupid to use. I thought like it didn't get me anywhere <laughs> that much faster and and for a lot more effort on just like one of my feet. Whereas, that's true. It does wear whereas, out your leg strangely fast. Like like one leg, you know what I mean? Yeah, I felt yeah. very I felt very imbalanced. It was like lifting weights with just my right arm. And bikes feel much more equal. They're just easier to use, more intuitive. That's true. And I I, th- I mean, that's that's kind of my, my, my best guess. Yeah. I think you're probably right. Expense is probably the biggest thing. A lot of e-bikes, even mm-hmm. low-end e-bikes, go for $1,000. Mm-hmm. Whereas I was looking at some of the numbers when Mobike and Ofo were starting in China. And they were talking about, you know, 150 to 200 bucks a bike, trying to get it real cheap. And like, if you're trying to roll out, you know, millions of bikes, it's much harder if you have to pay 1000 or 1500 bucks a bike. Right. Right. The scooters, I guess, are cheaper per mm-hmm. scooter. Yeah, the motor's smaller, battery's smaller. Yeah. You move less weight overall. Well, and people probably aren't taking the scooters as long distance. Like, in your experience, because you're in the, the place right. with all of them, <laughs> do people seem to use the scooters for the same things as they're using the bikes? Because I'm wondering, in the same way as buses and metros and trams are all used for different functions, mm-hmm. do these serve different functions in a city? I would want to see data on it before of course. I was 100% certain about this. But my guess is yes. Hmm. They are being used for probably the same the same type of trip. Okay. Because I feel like they're equal in the sense that hmm. if you have a non-electric bike and you have an electric scooter, you probably expend less energy taking a electric scooter the same distance, like a mile or whatever, than yeah, you would probably. just a non-electric bike. But at the same time, it's just easier. You know, like a bike is, is relatively easy to get around on unless you have to go up a hill or you're out of shape or whatever, but it's still relatively simple and mm. relatively easy to do. And so I think more, more people would opt for the electric versions of either the bikes or the scooters sure. just because you don't have to spend as much energy to do it. Yeah, especially in a hilly place like the Bay Area. Right, exactly. But like on sort of like flat ground, it just it doesn't really matter. It just depends on what's close to you. Okay. Although what the the interesting calculus I just thought is, you know, potentially if you're going a really long distance in a city, mm. if that bike, if that e-bike or that e-scooter will have enough juice to get you there. I don't know. I, uh, I, I, yeah. I'm honestly not sure. You know, maybe maybe it wasn't charged or maybe it had been ridden a lot that day. Whereas like a regular, just a regular bike, non-e-bike, has un- as much energy as you want to put into yeah, it. Yeah, true. So, I do wonder, have you looked at the scooters? Does it show you how much charge there is left? I guess I, they just assume it will last the day. Yeah, I believe it does. I okay, think some of them okay. even have like little solar panels on them, tiny mm-hmm. ones. I don't know how much that does. You know, so here's the thing. I don't take it because generally the places that I try to get to, yeah, I can take public transit to, or I would just rather walk. I'm just that type of person. I just, I just really like sure. walking. You don't have to pay attention as you're walking. If you're biking on a busy right. road, it's, yeah. A- additionally, I feel very unsafe in bike lanes and other public infrastructure. So like mm-hmm. I do bike occasionally, but I really dislike biking or scootering or whatever next to cars yeah i just don't trust them i mean i don't trust drivers when i drive but i have to drive at times (laughs) sure and i'd rather be relatively equal you know car to car 
rather than completely unequal with car yeah. and bike. Well, and your chance of surviving a car accident on a city road is much greater than your chance of surviving on a bike getting hit by a car. Yeah, no, totally. And I feel like as a pedestrian, at least I have that sort of lateral movement to jump out at the last second mm. if I could react quickly enough. But in a bike, you don't have that. Yeah. So anyway, that's sort of where my general ignorance comes okay. to this debate. But I will say that the way that I know about this stuff is from stories from my friends and peers who have, you know, commuted using these bikes or just taking them for a ride or taking them for fun to get around. And generally, like everyone has good things to say. I think yeah. I come down on this side of this issue that it's a boon for transportation throughout the city and that any of the problems that exist now, we can most likely get over. Um, and I think that ultimately, it'll add a lot to multimodal transit in the US and around the world. And I think the other thing and the thing we should definitely talk about is that with increased bike usage and scooter usage will come increased pressure put on local governments to uh, public bike infrastructure and, That's uh, definitely and true. everything in, in the US. And around the world, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And not only that, there's not only going to be public backing from the people who take the bikes, but there'll also be corporate backing. So, you know, if they want to run uh, campaigns to improve bike infrastructure uh, around the U.S. or whatever, there is now sort of a financial backer who is directly invested in the future of these bike lanes. And it would get people like me who feel unsafe on the roads out and onto the streets. Because ultimately, that's my that's my like my biggest obstacle. It's not that I don't I don't take bikes anywhere. It's just I prefer to walk and take public transit otherwise. Yeah, it's true. And that is a big thing that people should not underestimate. Like we mentioned in the last episode about the road gang and how instrumental companies that were associated with cars and roads and all of that were in the 20th century structuring of cities. Like having big, powerful companies fighting for transportation that at least you and I think is beneficial <laughs> is more likely to achieve change than a whole lot of individuals who really like having bike lanes that are protected, you know? Yeah. Like that that could have a, that could have a significant impact. Yeah. I mean, I obviously don't have personal experience with electric scooters, but I, I find it interesting in a place like San Francisco and a number of other cities now where these coexist, because I do wonder over time if they will start to take on different roles. Like I could imagine for myself, using a bike to get across the city, you know? Like I could commute to work on a 30-minute bike ride and that would be fine with me. I'm not sure I'd want to take a scooter for that long, um, especially because I'm not sure as comfortable as I am in a bike lane, I'm not sure I'd be comfortable in a bike lane on a scooter or if that is even allowed. I'm, I, I Like there's so many questions about how you ride it, where you ride it, all of that for me. Um, I, I kind of imagine if these continue to persist and coexist, I imagine the scooters as more of a trip around the corner kind of thing or trip two blocks down um, where to get on a bike to unlock a bike mount up and all of that like picking up a scooter just seems maybe faster and easier for a very short trip i don't yeah. actually know obviously but i will be interested to watch if these continue to persist together how their function diverges and that actually brings me to something that i i think is interesting about all of this it, and it's the hints at the future of transportation that i think this provides so if you think about electric scooters and manual bikes and electric bikes and cars and future autonomous vehicles and all, all of that, the way we're very likely going with a lot of these public transit options is large fleets of single-use vehicles that are owned centrally and used by everyone around the city. And I wonder as we talked about with automated vehicles, if eventually you get single small 
individual autonomous vehicles that kind of bridge the gap between an electric bike and a car today. You know what I mean? Because we've talked about how bikes save so much space, but if you had a self-driving electric motorcycle, for instance, right, where you could just sit in it and it was about the size of a motorcycle, but you could sit in and not have to drive it or anything like that might be the best of both worlds. I don't know, Mm. but it's interesting with companies like Uber and like Lyft who are interested in autonomous vehicles, interested obviously in, you know, quasi taxis and that model of driving people around in automobiles, getting into bike sharing and getting into electronic bikes and all of that, because seeing how all of this merges together and how it stratifies and how people use these different forms of transit, there are just increasing numbers of options and they could serve much more niche purposes than what we currently see today, where it's basically you use a car for everything in most places. Yeah, I I think that's super imaginative. I hadn't I hadn't thought about it that way, but these are definitely going to be a potential futures that people might be pushing up against. Yeah, uh, I think that it definitely makes sense. However, what I wanted to say first was kind of sort of state and see and see if you agree with me. The overall benefits of these programs. I mean, mm. I feel like we we talked a little bit about its downsides. Sure. Although we think that those downsides might go away eventually, and or self regulate, and or the cities would be able to figure out how to deal with these issues. Yeah. Um, but overall, the benefits beyond just increasing the amount of people who are biking and scootering around, you know, that's a reduction in uh, vehicle miles traveled in mm. cars throughout the city and even on public transit. And what I think it does crucially, and I think this is also the reason why Lyft and Uber are getting into the game, is because Lyft and Uber, they sometimes build themselves as last mile companies, which right. means that they provide the sort of last mile service between either your car or your public transit or uh, your walking distance or whatever, basically that really cumbersome last section of road or street that you need to cover in order to get to your destination. Right. Um, Lyft and Uber try to be that. But sometimes like it doesn't make sense to really call an Uber to go half a mile down the road. I would say it never makes sense to call an Uber to go half a mile down the road. I, I, I agree, but there are people that do it now because they either don't want to walk or they don't have any other choice. You know, like maybe there's a sort of a physical barrier. And high like heels, for me, whatever. Yeah. For, 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 for me, uh, I'm blocked sometimes by going certain places because there's just no way, there's no bike or walking paths to get to where I want to go. There's only a road. Right, you have to cross a car bridge um, or you have to cross a freeway or something like that. Right, right, exactly. And these bikes and scooters, um, and and I could take a bike or a scooter, but again, my, you know, sort of my issue with like being on a road with cars. It is dangerous. People die. It's really, it's really, really dangerous. I mean, we've talked about like the public health benefits of creating more walkable communities. And this is the way to do it by which I mean, increasing the amount of people who take bikes and who walk and who take scooters. Ultimately, I mean, it's a good thing because it incentivizes more options for you to get to where you want to go. It creates a lot more options. It's true. Right, right, exactly. I guess what I'm getting at is like, these are absolutely the benefits. And so because they are so beneficial, and because they can make money, and because people are excited about them and using them, your idea of, well, logically, where are we going to take this? At what point does, you know, how much more convenience can Mm. these companies add to these services? And, and what sort of way, you know, where are they going to take it, I think is is a really good question. I mean, I was was reading a couple articles about how one of the reasons why Lyft bought Motivate bikes is because Motivate, the docked bike share, right? Like it would seem like dockless is the way to go, right? Because it offers so many more opportunities to use the bikes. And it's much more similar Uh, to their current model. Right, right. But the, the interesting thing about this article, it was saying that 
potentially one of the reasons why Lyft bought Motivate is because Motivate has a bunch of existing contracts with cities Mm. to use their space. They actually have an allocated parcel of prime parking in spots around the city. And what if they could transform that specific area into like charging for electric bikes or charging for electric scooters, or maybe they create some sort of, maybe it's like specific bike parking for, for your bike. And then maybe they charge you a little bit of money. It opens up options for the company to become ultimately what they want. And I think that is when you need to go somewhere, you don't think about it. You just open your phone and open their app. And you can find multitude of ways to get to your destination beyond walking, unless walking is the best thing. And that to me sounds really cool and awesome. I'm honestly okay with it because I think that like having those options is beneficial for everyone. Mm. I am wary to see what happens in terms of our public infrastructure, because what I don't want to see is the city capitulate to companies to create options where you are forced to only use these companies options in order to get around like walking should also be considered as a prime method of transportation right if not the main method of transportation and and i get that like three dimensions exist and you're going to have to go farther distances to get to where you want to go even in even in large cities um that are walkable so um so i I want this to to exist but i i think that's like that's like the way that i view it that's sort of my my vision of the future is that this sounds awesome I'm glad they're getting into it, but just a little wary to see exactly where it wants to go. And I'm super excited to potentially revisit this problem or this issue in the future with you and talk about sort of, you know, where progress has been made and where it hasn't. Yeah, I am less concerned, as I pretty much always am, uh, than you (laughs) with the potential for the degrading of the public infrastructure with this. And my primary reason for that is, especially with the bike and scooter transport Less so with the car sharing, like with Uber and Lyft in particular. Uh, but with the bikes and scooters in particular, there is a huge amount of competition. And there are just a couple of huge wealthy cities that these companies want and need to be dominant in. And so that competition will not only drive down prices and not only drive innovation, but it will drive them to the bargaining table with whatever the city wants. Because like you said, with Lyft and Motivate, if they can get on the city's good side and they can get those deals with the city, then they can succeed and they will do what needs to be done to do that. So it gives cities like New York, cities like San Francisco, cities like Miami, a lot of clout in these sorts of negotiations and a lot of capacity to set rules. Um, Speaking on the Lyft thing that you were talking about in terms of their purchase of Motivate for the dock spaces, something I hadn't even thought about like that that was all fascinating but even if you take that one step farther at the point that they have electric vehicles and they have like autonomous electric vehicles if we get to that point those dock places throughout the major cities in the united states are often on sidewalks right next to streets and i could easily see not only having good charging stations for electronic bikes but having plugs to where these vehicles could park on the street next to it and plug in to charge as well. And that's something that I hadn't even fathomed, but it, it is a very interesting point that that purchase into real estate is a big thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hmm. But yeah, I think you're right with everything you were saying that there are a huge number of benefits with all of this. The ease of transportation is increased dramatically with these bike sharing schemes. Mm. And in a lot of ways, I think it reflects 
the benefits that we described when we were talking about autonomous vehicles, because it means that you don't need to own a bike. You can go wherever you want and you can leave it there. And that gives you the ability. I mean, obviously you do have to park it, but then very quickly it's used by somebody else. Right. And so it's kind of like if you took an autonomous vehicle as a taxi to someplace else, you don't really have to worry about parking because that parking is taken up very quickly because somebody else hops in the taxi, right? With a bike, it's supposed to be the same thing. You take it somewhere else, it's very quickly taken by somebody else going somewhere else. If this system worked ideally, that would be what you would have. And you would have many fewer bikes needing to be produced and owned and used throughout the city. And so it should, in theory, take up less space because if everyone's parking on the street, with these, there's a higher percentage of the bikes in the city being used at any given one time than you would normally have. Now, granted, many of these people currently store their bikes in their house, right? So that space is now freed up for anybody that no longer needs to own a bike. So you, you still get a benefit for the city, even though more of the bikes will be parked on the street at any given one time, um, because there's a higher utilization rate. And so just like the convenience, the cost savings, the lack of needing to own something and needing to worry about it getting stolen like that is a huge relief like i've talked to so many people who have advised me in a number of cities if you're going to get a bike get a really cheap bike because if you get a nice bike it's going to get stolen within a couple of weeks and being able to not worry about that is a huge load off your mind you know mm-hmm. it's also cheaper it's i mean it's m- most likely cheaper yes I, I know that i know that uh the ford go bikes I guess now motivate, I don't know, the lift bikes. Yes. In whatever the area they they have a plan for low income people. I think it's like $5 to rent like a year or whatever to, mm. to, to have like the ability to take bikes anywhere and and you you know they're they're docked bikes but they can take them for a very low amount of money, which is awesome because that increases the chances for people who don't have a lot of resources to then expand their ability to move around, which expands their ability to go for interviews, take jobs, go to jobs, get to friends' houses to care for others. It expands their ability to do things and live and beyond what public transit can do. Because I think you and I are sort of on the same page in that public transit is amazing and wonderful as a system, but it can't be everywhere at once. And these sorts of schemes like dockless bike share and docked bike share, whatever, scooters, they offer that ability to close the end loop, the end of the gap, or maybe even be the gap if you want. Sure. But yeah, I'm with you on Well, that. and I would say even the unsubsidized ones, like if you look at the private companies operating in China, or you look at like Dublin's docked bike system that they have, it's 25 euros for the year for anybody. And you're going to have to use the bikes for many, many years before it costs the same as a decent bike that you would actually buy. So... Yeah, like I, I think you're right. There is a lot of financial savings. Now, there is a caveat there that for most of the private companies, I don't know the finances on Motivate, but I know for Uber and Lyft generally, and for all of the Chinese companies, none of them have made a profit yet at all. Yeah. So the potential for this model to be successful is still enormously questionable. It remains to be seen whether or not right. in 10 years any of these models will exist or if it will be some fad that just blew up. Yeah, that hasn't stopped Uber and Lyft, though. No, but they are burning billions of dollars every year. So at some point, their prices may rise and it may become more expensive or they may go out of business. And so that is something to keep in mind, that as cheap as all of this looks now and as good as all of it looks now, these companies are still losing money. And so they may end up raising prices as competition dies down and as some of the businesses get weeded out. But to shift subjects slightly, Mm -hmm. I just wanted to think about some of the practicalities of some of this. Yeah. 
talking about, in particular, the electronic bikes and the electronic scooters versus traditional bikes. How do you feel about how they should be used and placed in in a city? Should they be able to use the bike lane? Should they be able to go on sidewalks? Yeah, good question. Great question. Actually, I think this is like part of the downsides to these e-bikes and bike share mm. in general, um, but also an upside. In my mind, and because I've, I mean, I've seen it <laughs> happen all the time, like the scooter should not be on the sidewalk. Right. What's crazy to me is before the advent of electronic scooters that were shareable, before right. that, people would not really ride their scooters on the sidewalk. They would ride them in the bike lane. Really? But now that they're everywhere. Yeah. I mean, I mean, more so than a bike. But when I had a scooter as a kid, I always rode on the sidewalk. I mean, maybe maybe I'm unique in that, but I don't know. I, I, f- I feel like I feel like it wasn't really until these came out that you really saw lots of lots and lots of people on mm. scooters on a sidewalk. And maybe that's just because scooters were not the best form of transportation. Not very many people. Yeah. I guess I also kind of liken them to skateboards and I see a lot of skateboarders in the bike lane rather than on the sidewalk. Okay. And sure. even the guys with the electric skateboards, they go super fast. Like those guys are out in the middle of the street. They're not on the sidewalk for right. the most part. Like there's always exceptions. I've almost been hit by one, but for the most part, I see them in the bike lane. And I feel like you know, you're not a pedestrian. Once you get on a vehicle, you're not a pedestrian. You should use the bike lane. At this point, maybe we shouldn't. We should stop calling it a bike lane and call it like a vehicle lane, or something. I don't know, like some sort of personal mobility transportation lane, which is way hmm. too long. But you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, if if you are not walking, you shouldn't be on a sidewalk. Sure, that's just for the safety of everyone, and that doesn't just go for electric bikes and electric scooters, but also regular manual bikes and manual scooters. Oh yeah, I completely agree. Um, in general, I mean, that's why there's a bike lane to begin with because we needed a place literally in between people who walk and people who drive, and um, and so you should follow those rules. And I would be totally fine with people getting fines or tickets mm. or whatever get their privileges revoked for not following those rules. Ultimately, it's a safety issue. And for me, the safety issue has gotten even worse because these bikes and scooters can go a lot faster, right. um, at least at least sustain high speeds for uh, as long as their battery lasts. A long time, yeah. Yeah, and additionally, they can stop and start a lot faster. So that's, that's a boon, right? Because people can, with start, starting and stopping a lot faster, I feel like people on e-bikes and e-scooters are more likely to obey the rules of the road because I feel for bikers when they have to stop at every single stop sign or stop at every single stoplight because that expends a tremendous amount of energy more than what you need to stop and start. It's much, much easier to just sort of continue to to move and coast. Can I cut you off there and ask a question? Because this is something that I am fascinated by. Yeah. Okay. Let's speak about transportation broadly and who has to obey the, the rules of the road. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I'm going to start with pedestrians, okay? Yeah, yeah. Now, I feel like pedestrians obviously don't have to stop at a stop sign, mm-hmm. right? They can walk across the street if there's no cars. Yeah. I think, generally speaking, it's fine to jaywalk as a pedestrian. Like, if you're on a small street and there's no cars, you can walk across it. I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing. Some people disagree with me, but in a lot of cities, especially cities that don't have crosswalks, this is a movement that has arisen in recent years. And obviously in a lot of old, old cities, there aren't sidewalk or crosswalks everywhere. You know, I think it's a perfectly reasonable thing for pedestrians not to follow the rules of the road, as it were. Now, when you're getting to bicycles, I know you were just lamenting having to stop at every stop sign. Do you feel like bicycles yeah. should have to follow the rules of the road? Uh, yes, they should have to follow the rules of the road. Okay. In the sense that the only way the road works is because everyone understands what the rules are. Mm. And in fact, I think if you are 
not following those rules, you're putting yourself in more danger. And as a person on a bike, you're putting yourself in grave danger because you're not going to win that fight. However, true. However, I'm more likely to be okay. I don't know. As a driver, I want to say they have to. As a biker, it really discourages bikers from biking. Like one of the ways that it can discourage bikers from biking is if they bike and they realize, man, this is like really stupid for me to be stopping at all of these points. Yeah. Because it, it really can take a toll, no matter how good of shape you're in, right? Like it can take a toll on you and it's just really And cumbersome. it slows you down a lot. Like it, it really it does. cuts into your It time. does. It, it does. If you have to stop every time a car stops. Now, I think that this is less of an argument of like, should bikers follow the rules of the road? And more of an argument of give bikers their own lanes, give bikers their own like bike highways, like hmm. give them back roads behind streets and through alleyways that are protected from both pedestrians and cars and places where bikes really don't have to stop. And I, I feel like there are models around the world that do this well right now. But I don't think there's any city that is so bike friendly that no one no. is on the streets. You're 100% correct. I think the aim of any bike infrastructure should be to eliminate completely or reduce the amount of times a biker needs to stop. And that and that should be the goal. Beyond mm. that, bikers really should follow the rules of the road. And believe me, I'm open to criticism. I'm open to hearing like other viewpoints about this. But I feel like just for the safety of all parties involved, but especially the bikers, because again, they're going to lose that fight. Yeah. For me as a driver, it really helps to know what's going on with that biker and like true what's super interesting sort of small little tangent here i went to like a bike ed class on how to cycle around a city on a bike Mm. and what to do in traffic and how to signal and all that stuff because honestly you know again as someone who really fears my life on a bike when i'm when i'm in the middle (laughs) of the road i wanted to understand like my rights and how to do it and best practices how to signal everything sure Right. But it went beyond signaling. I learned things that I thought were sort of counterintuitive, like taking the lane. So if you're on a bike, like it's actually really unsafe for you to be near parked cars because you don't know if someone's in that parked car who's just going to open the door and then you flip over the door and you can get really hurt. And additionally, like you don't want to be too far into the road, but like a lot of bike lanes, you want to kind of be on like the very left side of the bike lane Mm. as close to the road as possible because you want to be far away from the parked cars, but you also want to be really visible to cars so they know that you're there. Right. And so you take you take kind of take the lane was what they call it. And then you're basically in the middle of the lane and you're riding, but you're going to be going slower than cars. So they have to go around you, which is a nuisance. And I guess what I'm trying to get at is when I took my driver's ed courses, I right. was never taught what bikers should do in order to keep themselves safe. That's true. Yeah. No. And and I don't and I'm 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 floored that we don't teach that, at least in the states like hopefully in other countries it's better but at least I in the states doubt it at least in at least in california and like california is a really bike friendly state compared to others yeah but you're not taught what bikers are going to do in order to keep themselves safe and also the fact that like if a biker wants to turn left do like a left-hand turn they're going to cross car traffic to get into that left-hand turn lane at an intersection yeah and to do that requires the biker to put themselves out in front of the cars to take the lane and if a driver doesn't understand what that biker is doing, then they're going to get mad at them and they're not going to understand. They might get hurt. So this is like a long way of saying that I really think that the separation between cars, bikes, trams, and walkers is like huge. And we should not have a hybridized street system. Maybe on the smallest streets it's possible because at that point cars shouldn't be going very fast anyway. Yeah. Um, and bikers could easily get on the sidewalk for half a second, then get off of it to let a car go by or something. But um, on major thoroughfares, really, bikes should be given their own infrastructure. And so, yeah, I would say if a if yeah. a street doesn't even have like that dotted line down the middle to divide the two sides of traffic, 
don't worry about bikes. You're going slow enough that it's fine. Right. If it gets bigger than that and you have like two or three lanes on either side, it becomes much more of an issue. Yeah. And so that is, that's kind of how I feel about it. But ultimately like for e-bikes and e-scooters and any, and any sort of bikes or scooters or whatever, they need to go into bike lanes and they really, yeah, they need to be treated as such. They should not go, they should not go on the sidewalk. I think it's dangerous, ultimately, and also because they can go at such high speeds. I, mean, I don't think they the... should go in bike lanes. I think they should only be in the road. Here's So okay. let me so let me just, okay. full disclosure, I don't follow rules of the road when I'm on a bicycle because I think <laughs> it's, not that it's silly, I, just, I think that there is a spectrum of transportation, right? So when I think about rollerbladers or I think about people on a skateboard, I think they're more pedestrian than they are driver. And so... I certainly would never expect a person with rollerblades to stop at a stop sign or something like that. With bikes, they're closer to being a driver, but I still think they're in between. And so I think, yes, they have to follow general rules of the road when they're riding with traffic. So they have to signal if they're going to change lanes. They have to signal if they're going to turn, things like that. That is basic for safety. I don't think that they necessarily have to stop at a stop sign or things like that because bikes, unlike cars... You have a, like, I I think with pedestrians, you have the, how should I say this? The shortest time between starting and stopping. So if you see a problem and it's, you know, a foot in front of you, you can generally stop. On a bike, you can't stop as quickly, but you can still stop pretty quickly. With a car, it's a much slower thing. There's, There's much less room for error because, you know, one, it's a huge vehicle. And two, you can't accelerate that quickly. You can't stop that quickly. And so I think you don't necessarily have to follow all of the rules on a bike. With an e-bike, though, I think of e-bikes almost more like electric light motorcycles. And I think the problem with putting bikes on the sidewalk is that bikes and pedestrians go at too different a speed. A bike is, you know, four or five times faster than a pedestrian, at least. The problem between bikes and e-bikes is similar. E-bikes go more than double the speed of a bike. E-bikes on most city roads are going closer to what car traffic is going. And I think if they're going that fast, it is dangerous. Like I remember when I was a child, the biggest thing that my father always told me about driving is you want to be close to the same speed as all the other cars around. Because the most dangerous situation is when one car is going really slow, one car is going really fast. It's equally dangerous when you're talking about bikes. And so if you have electronic bikes in a bike lane, bike lanes aren't huge. They're not enormous. It's not easy to pass. If you're going three times the speed, you're going to have a lot of issues. And you see this, like something like 80% of deaths on bicycles now are involving e-bikes. Like it's a dramatically rising number. And that's, that's a statistic from the Netherlands, not from the US admittedly, but like the danger rises quickly and i think they are further on that spectrum toward being drivers and toward being cars okay i think here's a place where we need to have a little bit of nuance and distinction okay in my mind e-bikes fall into two categories Hmm. those that have distinct motors that propel you forward and those that are pedal assist oh sure sure and pedal assist is different in that you have an internal motor that only really kicks in when you need to, I don't know, go up a gear, go down a gear, essentially when you're going up hills. For hills, yeah. Basically, when you start to exert more pressure on the pedals than the bike thinks you need to exert, then it kicks in and it helps. So as my friend put it, like going up and down the hills of San Francisco felt like she was just riding on a flat street. Hmm. And that allowed her to move quickly up the hill, but it didn't allow her to move at the speeds that you were talking about where it's like a genuine 
distinct motor on the e-bike. Right. At which point, yes, I agree with you. Those should be treated more like motorcycles. Okay. Whereas the e-bikes that I have found for both the dockless and docked bike share programs Mm -hmm. are mostly pedal assist. Okay. Yes. Yes. They're mostly pedal assist. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, there are a bunch of companies out there and they might be doing different things. Yeah. It's hard to know universally. Because you're right. You're you're 100% correct. The variable for me is speed. Mm. What is it like? (laughs) Uh, Force equals mass times acceleration. Like if you're going to just increase your your acceleration, then you're going to increase the amount of like force that you're going to exert on impact times velocity but yes sorry go ahead okay sure yeah i I definitely didn't major in physics but i know enough that you increase the acceleration on something and it's going to increase the amount of force Hmm. and so to me that's that's where it comes down to so maybe there needs to be some sort of regulation that says that dockless or docked e-bikes have to be pedal assist only or they have to be under a specific limit or they have to go on the road right and i think that there are definite uses for both for both the pedal assist and the sort of standalone motor e-bikes and and i think that like as long as you just give them their own separate spaces and understand the consequences of both so like pedal assist e-bikes can still be dangerous because like any pedaled manual bike that's going to hurt a pedestrian more than two pedestrians colliding whereas a car is going to hurt pedestrian more than a bike colliding with them but your impact is roughly the same as any other bike you're going roughly the same speed exactly and that's and that's and that's my issue i mean the thing about e-bikes to me the big difference is that it helps you get over hills it helps you if you're more elderly or if you have or if you're carrying something heavy or if you just don't want to exert as much pressure you don't want to be Mm. sweaty by the time you get to work like an e-bike is perfect because you don't have to exert as much energy or, or, or pressure yeah and so that's why i think they're awesome and that's why i think that they should stick around Oh, yeah. And I also think there's a space for these motorized standalone motor e-bikes because they do the exact same thing, but they allow you to go a lot faster. And because of that, to me, they should be treated more like motorcycles. And I, I think I'm, I agree with you in that in that sense. Yeah. Well, and so many, I mean, the, the fully motorized e-bikes, like they're also substantially more expensive very often. Like you're talking about four or $5,000. For sure. At this point, I think what we're talking about is personal use e-bikes rather than docked and dock and dockless bikes. Exactly. Because they're, those are generally not being rolled out in fleets, as you said. And I think if they were rolled out in fleets, that's a pretty easy solution where a city could easily tell the fleet operator, cap the speed of these bikes at this level. That's not that hard. It's much harder with individually owned e-bikes because you're not going to get the manufacturer to cap the speed. Just like with cars, they can go over the speed limit. Those are going to be able to go over the speed limit. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't have a good solution for that. But I think that those e-bikes, the fully motorized ones, like obviously I think the pedal assist is great. Like it, it, it makes hilly cities like Rome or San Francisco dramatically more accessible and it makes it easy to bike in them. Like I would never be a bike only person in San Francisco. I could be a bike only person in some cities, not in San Francisco. But with the pedal assist bike, you definitely can. E-bikes, I think, are also a benefit. Like, I think that they provide a great alternative to cars and motorcycles and things like that because, again, you can still park them on the street. They take up much less space. You know, they they still have many of the benefits of bicycles. It's just hard to put them in the same place as other bicycles. Yeah, I I, I don't know. I, I think that, like, as long as you keep them distinct, hmm. that's kind of that's my thing. But there's definitely a way to do it. And I think that a, a part of the reason why the Uber model of just kind of pushing into the market can be bad is because these are unintended consequences that I don't think the companies were thinking about that policy needs to kind of either come before or come with the introduction of these sorts of new modes of transportation, just so that we can like think through all of the issues and then also react to anything new. 
Right. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't disagree with that. I do think that just charging into the market forces people then to grapple with things more quickly, right? Perhaps it causes some problems early on. But, you know, when cars first started rolling out, there weren't stoplights. We figured that out over time that we needed those as speeds rose and everything. And, you know, we adjusted. With these things, as we talked about with bike parking etiquette, will evolve and handle this. And there's not that much damage done, I don't think. Like there's some annoyance, there's some hassle, but that's part of the job of the city, right? To figure these things out, to work with these companies, to improve transit and to utilize these new technologies and these new business models to the benefit of the city and the populace. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really excited for the future of this. I see them everywhere. I love it. Another thing sort of anecdotally mm. that I have loved about e-bikes is that I've noticed especially for their reduced costs, I've noticed that a lot of the people who are using it are teenagers, are kids yeah. who are getting out and just riding with their friends around and having a great time. And it's awesome. Because like, I mean, the current rallying cry that like baby boomers love to use is, man, these kids are just sitting on their phones all day and not doing anything. Right. Well, here's an example of them absolutely going out. They might be taking a selfie while they're doing it. But like, they're, still, they're still getting, they're still getting, yeah, yeah. I can't true. tell you that's how many true. people I've seen on bikes texting or like looking at something on their phone. It drives me yeah. insane. If Same you think thing. it's bad yeah. driving, if you're biking. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. Same thing with people who drive though. Yeah. And, no, uh, yeah, and you can, course. you can probably do more damage in a car than on a bike. But yeah, it, yeah, I have no idea how to regulate that. That's just tough, well, man. You can't, um, you just have to yeah. give people just gotta, tickets. Just got to deal with it I yeah guess, unfortunately yeah yeah give them tickets when you can but it still won't stop people but yeah i've loved to watch this progression of both scooters and bikes roll out i thought it was like both funny and really amazing and sort of disheartening at times to see people just treat essentially public property because it feels like public property because anyone can use it right so um, well okay it might, it's, it's not actually public property <laughs> no. but like it but it is something that you know it was an asset that is now destroyed yeah just like thrown away it is disheartening to see people just be wanton destruction right but beyond that i think these are pretty great and i'm excited to see what happens to them next yeah and i in addition to this just as one last thing i will say that you know i'm always optimistic about things and i think all of the developments in this area reinforces the fact that these things are not static they're continually changing they're continually advancing and if you think the structure of your city or the transportation system is not great, keep an eye out for where it's going forward. The future solutions that you have as technologies advance, as business models develop, people will come up with newer, stranger modes of transit that will potentially serve all sorts of groups and all sorts of functions that were previously underserved or Mm -hmm. completely Mm -hmm. ignored. So yeah, it's it's a great advance. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to them rolling out across all areas of the city, mm. not just downtowns. Yeah. Totally. Okay, should we wrap it up? Yeah, that was awesome. It's really fun to talk about emerging technologies, and I'm super excited to see where they go. And I think for our next episode, we're going to do uh, another takedown of, or breakdown, I should say, of the city. <laughs> I think we're going to talk about uh, Paris this time, right? It's yeah. It's near and dear to our hearts. It is indeed. And quite different from the last one we discussed. Quite, quite different. Definitely. And yeah. So I'll talk to you in two weeks then. Absolutely. You can find our show notes and links to anything we mentioned in the show at subjectradio.com slash polis slash zero one one. And yeah, I'll talk to you in two weeks. Yeah. Bye, man. Bye.
hitting recording now. Starting recording now, I should Me say. Me too. Cool. Cool. Awesome. Turning off my camera now. Bye. <laughs> uh, <sighs> okay. So, this is episode 11? Yes. Okay. So, uh, how do we start again? Uh, <laughs>